Timothy. And in this passage, Paul begins to address the specific issues of false teaching that were going on in the church in Ephesus. So Paul instructs Timothy as he's pastoring, these church, pastoring this church with these words. He says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, Train yourself for godliness, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, for to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hopes set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe." Let's pray and ask for God's blessing on His Word this morning. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we do pray for the outpouring of Your Spirit, that we might understand Your Word, that we might be changed by Your Word, that we might see Your goodness and the goodness that You bestow upon us in so many ways, which is just simply a reflection of how good You are. So let us see that and understand that from Your Word this morning, and let us embrace this truth in our lives. In Jesus' name, We pray, amen. People do not drift towards holiness, writes D.A. Carson, New Testament scholar. He says, apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate towards godliness, prayer, obedience to Scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift towards compromise, and we call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience, and we call it freedom. We drift towards superstition, and we call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control, and we call it relaxation. We slouch towards prayerlessness, and we delude ourselves into thinking that we have escaped legalism. We slide towards godlessness and convince ourselves that we have become liberated. And in contrast to that pervasive analysis of our souls today, Paul writes to Timothy, train yourself in godliness. Godliness is not this detached, pietistic, quiet, removed meditation. Rather, godliness is living a Christ-centered, gospel-centric life, a life of godly conduct for the sake of ourselves, for the sake of the church, and for the sake of the lost world. And Paul admonishes us, he says, train for godliness, exercise, work out. He actually uses the word from, that we get the word gymnasium, uh, that was used for the Greek games. Train yourselves, discipline, training, do so, train yourself in godliness. This passage explains this in several different ways and the importance of doing so. To train ourselves for godliness means that we need to train ourselves for truth. 
He says, the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are sealed. We need to train for the truth because the truth is so easily distorted. Here's where it comes from. He expressly says that anything that is a false truth, that is a distortion of the truth, comes from the pit of hell. It comes from deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. He calls it for what it is. It is not anything else but teaching that comes straight out of the pit of hell, no matter how benign it may feel or benign it may seem. And this teaching, this demonic teaching, comes straight from the pit of hell, and it comes through the insincerity of liars. It comes through people. The term he uses there is a, a double whammy. The insincerity of liars. Insin- to be insincere means to falsely portray something that is positive. Sincerity is good. Someone who is insincere is portraying something positive, and they're doing it falsely. A liar is the converse. A liar is someone who portrays a falsehood positively. They portray a falsehood as truth. And insincerity is a truth or something positive portrayed falsely. He says this teaching comes from the insincerity of liars straight from the pit of hell through people whose consciences are seared. What does that mean? means their conscience, their, their moral compass, their ability to discern truth and error has become desensitized. It has become numb. Paul would write that people claiming to be wise have become utter fools. And the preacher in Hebrews would declare that one of the problems of Christians, one of the problems of faithful church-going Christians is they become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. They become desensitized, desensitized to the truth, desensitized to godliness. And what is disturbing and subtle is that when people turn away from the truth and when it gets distorted, they oftentimes don't know that's occurring. They, They gradually edge away from pure belief to unbelief. And sometimes the departure is imperceptible, not aware that their belief has changed. It reminds me of, you know, if you've ever, you know, Reminds me of the first apartment that we lived in where there was this nice light-colored carpet, and we had a couch that sat there for a couple years. And though we cleaned the house, and though the house was clean when we moved, and we moved the, the carpet, when we moved the couch from where that one spot it had been, we're like, oh, this is disgusting, right? I mean, look at the color change between the carpet that was there and the carpet that was, that was, that was underneath the couch. Do we wake up one day and say, we want to have disgusting carpet in our house? No, it was imperceptible. It's an imperceptible change that had occurred. And it's a similar thing that happens with truth and the, with, with the truth of Scripture and with godliness. Is that our consciences become seared and almost imperceptible as it is happening. Which is why we need to train ourselves, deliberately train ourselves in the truth and train ourselves for the truth. We also need to do it because deceivers are deceptive. These people that Paul is identifying, these 
these teachers, these professing Christians who are insincere liars, whose consciences are seared, who are giving teaching that is coming straight from the pit of hell, they do not stand up in church and they say, brothers and sisters, I have an announcement for you today. I have a smoking hot message from the pit of hell, and my conscience has been sincered by this, and my desire is to lead you, ast- lead you astray from the truth. It doesn't come that way. Rather, the way that it comes, the way that deceivers work is that the deceivers work deceptively. They work in ways that you don't see. And for each one of us, the people that, by whom we are most likely to be deceived by are people that we respect, people that we know, people that have either a positional authority or an informal authority. And those are the ones who are most likely to lead people astray. Quite frankly, it is people like me, people who are in positions of authority with the appearance, appearance of authority, who have knowledge and education in a, in a given area. And what this means is that for you as the body of Christ, your duty, my duty as well, your duty is to train yourself in the truth. And to train yourself, namely because those who are deceived, either unwittingly deceived, or those who are deliberate deceivers, the counteraction for that is a body of believers who is trained in the truth of God's word. And so what this means for you is that what you need to do is that you need to know God's Word, train yourself in God's Word, and if you ever hear me saying something that's inconsistent with the Word of God, to say, hey, you know, as you mentioned what you said in the sermon today, that doesn't, I don't really see where that came from this passage of Scripture. The other portion of Scripture seems to contradict this. Would you explain this further? That is your duty as a church and as church members and as Christians so that we together are a body of believers that holds ourselves firmly to the Word of God. Deceivers are deceptive, and at times that they themselves are deceived. The other reason why we need to train ourselves for the truth and in the truth is because Scripture is very clear that deceivers will come. There will be deceivers in the church. The Spirit expressly says, that's like saying the Bible says, that in latter times, which Paul is identifying, now the church in Ephesus is in, and we are too today, the Spirit expressly says that some will, defa- will, dis- will depart the faith, that it will happen. This means for us is that don't let that throw your faith and your perception and understanding of the Bible into a tizzy. Don't say, well, if people who say they believe the Bible act like that, the Bible must not be true, as people sometimes say. Rather, it should be just the opposite. Wow, the Bible says that people who call themselves Christians, the Bible says that they're going to act like that. How true the Bible is. The Bible said this is exactly what's going to occur. And so if you have a Christian leader who revokes the faith or walks away or falls into sin and church members who do, don't be surprised by that. Be saddened by it, but don't be surprised by that. Because deceivers will come and we need to train ourselves in the truth and train ourselves for the truth. So we train in godliness. The specific issue for the church that Paul is addressing here is instruction that he gives the church here to train themselves to enjoy God. To enjoy God. The issue at hand is an issue that people wrestle with today, Christians and non-Christians. How do we, as people, how do we relate to the material world? How do we relate to the created order? And what the false teachers were doing, 
people who called themselves Christians, who identified as Christians, who were regarded as Christians, some of whom were likely elders in this church. What the false teachers were doing is that they were denying the goodness of God, and they were doing so by distorting God's Word. And they were distorting God's Word by either adding to it or taking away from it. The specific issue at hand in terms of how Christians are to relate to the created order, the specific issue at hand was that there are these false teachers who forbid marriage and require abstinence from food that God created. When it says here that they forbid marriage, there is zero question about what the issue is that they're specifically addressing. Is that the false teachers were requiring abstinence from certain food and they were forbidding marriage because of sexual intimacy in marriage. Without question, that's the issue that's being addressed here. And what Paul's response is, is that these teachers, there was the intentional denial of things that God created and God declared to be good. And they were distorting the word of God. Brian Chappell very astutely states, It is the nature of all hypocrites and false prophets to create a guilty conscience in matters where there is no offense. Let me state that again. It is the nature of all hypocrites and false prophets to create a guilty conscience in matters where there is no offense. The strategy that people use when this is they, they want to hide their inner wicked, wickedness by an outward observance. And unfortunately, it's not just then, but Christians today wrestle with this tension and at times come with wrong conclusions. Wrong conclusions from teaching that stems from the pit of hell. And so, there are Christians in relation to the, the, to the created world that God created. The response to this is to say, okay, the created world, the material world is bad. Anything that is not expressly Christian is bad. So Christians need to set up a parallel society so that we only do Christian things. We only do Christian music. We only listen to Christian music. We only engage in Christian activity. We only read Christian books. We only use Christian art. And anything that is not in that, in that parallel Christian-only society means that music is bad, art is bad, dancing is bad, uh, literature is wicked, sex at best is shameful at best, and many Christians walk around with this pervasive sense of guilt. And they walk around with a pervasive sense of guilt, and they also walk around with a very, very perverse, perverted feeling. They walk around with a very perverted feeling that the material world, with its pleasures, such as marital intimacy and food, is tainted. That it is tainted and somehow inherently sinful. And so many Christians, as a reaction, maybe against their past, maybe against things that they were involved with before, their reaction is to become very strict. And the reaction is, is that we are going to completely isolate ourselves, completely separate ourselves from anything out in the world because those, thing, those things are bad. And so it is a call to complete and utter self-denial. And it's a little bit understandable because our own hearts, many people within our culture more broadly, their response to the struggle of life is that they've got this 
gnawing, nagging emptiness inside. There's this sense that there's got to be more. There's this sense that, that, I, that something's not right. I, I've gotta, there's got to be something else. Why is there this boredom? Why is there this nagging emptiness that's going on inside of me? And the most common answer to that, that people engage in, is that the answer is, why do you have this nagging, gnawing emptiness inside of you? Because you need more. You need more. Fill in the blank. You need more food, you need more drink, you need more sex, you need more vacation, you need more house, you need more cars, you need more this, you need more whatever. The answer is more. That what's going to satisfy the inner longing is this more of the sensual experience and sensual exposure. And what ends up happening is that the good things of God get abused and distorted. Food turns into greed and gluttony, or it turns into eating disorders, or the idolization of food. Sexual desire turns into lust and promiscuity. And what happens is that people pursue these things, and they only end up in more bondage, in more heartache, and more emptiness. Why? Because there is an abuse of God's good gift. But Christians oftentimes err at the other end. Is that the reaction is that those things are bad, or have been bad, or maybe were bad in my life, and so I'm going to be very strict. Because anything that is enjoyable or pleasurable must be bad, much must be evil, must be wicked. In fact, it works into our vocabulary. Consider this. You like that nail polish color? The brand of nail polish that is called Sinful Colors. Sinful Colors. I didn't know colors were sinful. But what is the, what is the marketing strategy of that company? The marketing strategy is, well, we all know that anything that's really fun, anything that's bright and vibrant, is obviously sinful. Let alone that sinful cake sitting over there as well. I mean, ice cream, chocolate, fudgy goodness. I mean, that, that must be sinful. And there are sinful sweets. Why? Because the perception is that things that are really good, things that are really pleasurable, things that are really enjoyable, must be sinful. It gets expressed in a lot of different areas. And the idea then is that godliness comes from abstaining or a denial of God's good creation. It extends not only to the world of food, but also to, there is, within Christian circles, especially a perversion of God's design for marital intimacy. Leland Riken is a historian and cultural, uh, also studies cultures in his book, Worldly Saints, notices the he observes the progression of the distorted teaching that was occurring in Ephesus through the history of the church. He says, The dominant attitude of the Catholic church throughout the Middle Ages was that sexual love itself was evil and did not cease to be evil even if the object of it were one's spouse. The early church fathers, Tertullian and Ambrose, you might know those names, believed that the extinction of the human race was to be preferred to sexual relationship within marriage. Ambrose wrote that married people ought to blush at the state in which they are living. Augustine, whose doctrine of salvation is excellent, argued that sexual relationship was innocent in marriage, but the passion that accompanies it is always sinful. And so he frequently counseled married couples that they needed to abstain. Other church leaders, Albertus and Aquinas, objected to marital intimacy because it subordinates the reason to the passions. And the church fathers, that is the ancient prominent uh, leaders of the church that, that you might have heard of, they're virtually unanimous in praising virginity 
as a morally and spiritually superior state than marriage. This ultimately culminated in the Council of Trent, which was the Counter-Reformation, which denounced those who denied. They affirmed that perpetual virginity was spiritually and morally superior to being married, and they denounced anyone who did not hold that view. Subsequently, the Roman Catholic Church kept adding more and more days in the church calendar in which the church prohibited marital intimacy until it got to the point that more than half of the days in the year were excluded. No wonder there was the Reformation. (laughs) Because there was an abuse and distortion of God's Word. And an abuse and distortion of the goodness of God's creation. And as we look at what the Bible says about these things, I want you to understand that the Bible's position is not moderation. The Bible's position is not on the one end there is self-indulgence, and on the other end there is self-denial, and we just need to find this happy middle median, median place of moderation. What the Bible calls is a, third, a different way altogether. Because what the Bible calls us to do is not to hold this tension between self-indulgence and between self-denial and hold the tension between. Rather, what the Scripture calls us to do is to receive God's creation with thanksgiving. It is to, to receive the good blessings that God provides and to say, how is one way that I know that God is good? Look at His creation. Look at this chocolate cake. What a picture of the goodness and extravagance of God. I mean, you know, think about this. You go on a hike in the woods and you see a beautiful flower or a beautiful sunset. And many of us might look at that and say, wow, isn't it amazing that there is a creator who designed all this thing? Absolutely. Absolutely. But isn't there amazing that a creator designed all this thing and gave you the ability that you would enjoy it? That you would have pleasure in it? That you would say, wow, that just made my day. That is a sign of the goodness of God and his character being given, his character being reflected through the gifts that he gives in creation and in the, in, in the created order. The issue is that we're going to receive these things with thanksgiving. G.K. Chesterton, Roman Catholic theologian, who was actually rather funny despite his demeanor, um, reflecting on this says, You say grace before meals, all right. But I say grace before I go to the play, and I say grace before the opera, and I say grace before I open a book, and before sketching and painting and swimming and fencing. I say grace before boxing and walking and playing and dancing, and I say grace before I dip, before I dip the pen in the ink. And he is exactly right that we are to receive, that God created these things to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. How are God-fearing people who know the truth and who believe the truth, how are we to respond? We're to receive them with thanksgiving, to receive it with enjoyment, to train ourselves in enjoying God that as we enjoy these things, we do so for the glory of God. The Scripture says whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. That we enjoy these things, not for self-indulgence, but you enjoy them for God's glory and as a reflection of His character. So we give thanks for the many blessings that God gives. Look what he says in Psalm 104. The psalmist is praising God for His goodness. You cause the grass to grow 
for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate. That he, he's praising, God, you do this. You cause the grass to grow. That man may bring forth fruit, food from the earth. That he may bring forth wine to gladden the heart of man. Oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. What is the psalmist praising? God, all of these things are a sign of your goodness. You give them for our enjoyment that we would enjoy you. The Westminster Confession of Faith says that man's chief end, our highest goal, our highest purpose, is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. To enjoy God. Some people reflect on them and say, what that means is the way that we glorify God, that we most glorify God, is we glorify God by enjoying Him. By, we en- by enjoying His character. By enjoying the good gifts. And so what does that mean? It means that, you know, last week, Carl, the other week, Carl shared that he likes to come home and have a glass of wine and eat some peanuts. What do you, what do, you do? You come home, have a glass of wine, and you say, thank you, Lord. Thank you for your good gifts. And because this is a good gift, I don't need another glass. I don't need to engage in self-indulgence. But I can receive this with thanksgiving as a good gift that you are provided. We are created so that our greatest source of joy would be found in God himself. And you look at the entire creation, and God says, I love you so much. I want you to know my character. I am giving you the creation that you would know my goodness and that you would enjoy me. And that you would enjoy me in real and tangible ways. Ecclesiastes reflects a similar idea. It says, go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved what you do. Let your garments always be white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. For God has already approved what you do. He's saying, be trained in thanksgiving. Be trained to enjoy life. Be trained to enjoy life so that you would thank God as the source of all goodness and grace and truth and pleasure in your life. This might be, I think I'm sure this is surprising. Some of the people who got, had the best understanding of this were the Puritans. Were the Puritans. And you might hear the word being a Puritan or being Puritanical, and the idea that comes to your mind is repression and stern abstinence and a rigid frigidity. It's not so. I am in agreement with C.S. Lewis as he writes in uh, the Screwtape Letters where Screwtape, who is the older demon who is training his understudy Wormwood in how to tempt Christians. And he is boasting about the way that the devil, that he, has redefined the word Puritan and Puritanism. And this is what, Wormwood, this is what Screwtape says to his understudy. My dear Wormwood, and may I remark in passing that the value that we have given to that word Puritan is really one of the solid triumphs of the last hundred years. Isn't it great the way that we have completely upended and reversed the meaning of that word? Dr. Riken, here's why. Dr. Riken continues on this particular issue. He says, The Puritan doctrine of sex was a watershed on the cultural history of the West. The Puritans devalued celibacy, glorified companionate marriage, affirmed married sex as both necessary and pure, and established the ideal of wedded, roman- of wedded romantic love and exalted the role of the wife. And Puritan literature has many stunning expressions of marital love. 
And so the next time that you're about to go on a date night, I would love to pass you some Puritan literature to set the mood for the evening. It might be rather surprising what these godly men and women wrote. That what God has created that is to be received with thanksgiving. I think it is worth asking that question a little bit more and diving into that because it is a problem today. What is joy-filled marital intimacy? What is joy-filled thanksgiving in marriage? Unfortunately, sexuality has become so distorted and twisted and confused and shaped by pornography, by movies, by erotica, writings, Fifty Shades of Grey, uh, various television shows, all of which have a distorted view of God's gift, and that has shaped Christians' view and understanding of God's goodness, let alone people's personal experiences, guilt, shame, and baggage that they bring into, that they bring into their marriage. And so it is with an exceedingly high level of regularity that I'm engaging with couples who do certainly in premarital counseling and other situations as well, that God's picture of what he designed has been so distorted and so perverted and there have been so much baggage connected with it that it is very difficult for many Christians to separate God's goodness from the shame that they have associated with it in their own life. To help you with that, one, look what Scripture says and be encouraged by that. Number two, just a bit more tangibly, uh, Carl and Pam Farner, Carl's one of our elders here, um, God has gifted them to help couples work through this issue in their relationship and to work through what is God-honoring marital intimacy that is joy-filled and life-giving and as God intended and God created. And if that's a struggle or issue for you, I would encourage you to talk to them and they can, they can journey with you in that. And I guarantee you that there is no depth of distortion that you can say that will surprise them. I guarantee you. And they long for Christian marriages to reflect the biblical ideal. I want us to see here that this training in godliness, training in truth, training to enjoy God is something completely different than self-indulgence on the one hand and self-denial on the other hand. It is rather something that is not focused on self at all. It is relating to the created order fundamentally from the dynamic of a worshiper towards God, giving thanks to him for his good gifts that he bestows on his children he loves. Train for truth, train to enjoy God. And why do we need to do all this training? Because eternity is in view. To train for eternity makes this clear in verses 6 through 8. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Most likely as the backdrop of this, the Ephesians and the residents of Ephesus certainly appear from uh, history that they spent enormous amounts of money and enormous amounts of time physically training for athletic competitions for various community festivals and athletic events. 
and positively, the Bible affirms that physical training is good. For while bodily training is of some value, it is good. We need to care for our bodies. Robert Murray McShane, Scottish preacher, did an amazing what the Lord did through him. Died at the age of 29. And shortly before his death, he said, God gave me a horse to ride and a message to deliver, and I have killed the horse. He didn't take care of himself. He was diagnosed with tuberculosis, I think, at the age of 20. He never, he never pursued the treatment or the rest that he needed to recover from tuberculosis, and he eventually died of it, having suffered from it for nine years. He died of tuberculosis at the age of 29. God gave me a message, and he gave me a horse, and I killed the horse. Physical training is of some value. Personally, what this means, this is the reason why I exercise. It's also the reason why I limit my intake of Krispy Kreme donuts, no matter how many you give me during the month of October. <laughs> um, watch out what you say in a sermon at the beginning of the month of October. <laughs> um, but I do give thanks for each and every one of them, I might add. He says, physical training is of, of value. It is of some value, but it is not ultimate. Arnold Schwarzenegger with his bowling ball biceps will not carry them into eternity. And he, will not, he likely will not take them to the grave. But Scripture affirms that bodily training is of value, but it is not the answer to an abundant life. Physical training, your physical training, should pale in comparison to your deliberate concerted effort at training in godliness. Training godliness because it has unlimited benefits both in this life and the life to come. That true godliness will make us better employees, better spouses, better parents. It will make us more joy-filled people. If you are fortunate, your body will last a few years. But your training in godliness will not only be a benefit now, but will be a benefit for eternity. As I'm saying this, the question may come to your mind, How on earth am I going to fit Bible reading and prayer into my life when I've barely got enough time to exercise? I would suggest you flip the question. How on earth am I going to fit exercise into my life when I've barely got enough time for my Bible reading and my prayer? That would be Paul's emphasis in this passage. And if you think I'm overstating the case, look at what Paul says. Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself. The word there is to exercise, to work out. It's the word that we get the word gymnasium from. Train yourself for godliness. For while bodily value, while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Which saying? This saying, to train yourself for godliness. For it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. If you've been here for a series in Timothy, does that phrase ring a bell? Paul uses it only two times in the book of Timothy. Here and one other place. The other place he uses it is this. This saying, wrong way. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Profound statement. The one other time that Paul uses that statement is to train yourself for godliness. Do you think he takes this seriously? 
Absolutely. To train yourself, sweat-producing, muscle-strengthening, endurance-increasing, training in godliness. To train in what? How do you do it? He lays it out here for us. In the words of the faith and good doctrine, train yourselves in the word of Scripture and good doctrine. What is doctrine is understanding how Scripture ties together from passage to passage. It is how the whole of Scripture fits together. What are the specific things that he gives us to train in? That you would do so with thanksgiving, in the word of God, and with prayer. Your community group leaders, your journey group leaders, elders, pastors of our church would love to be your personal trainer to help you train in godliness. Lieutenant General William K. Harrison, who was one of the most decorated soldiers in the 30th Infantry Division, which was rated by General Eisenhower as the number one infantry division in World War II. General Harrison was the first American to enter Belgium during that war, which he did as the head of the Allied forces. He received every decoration for valor except the Congressional Medal of Honor. He was honored with the Distinguished Service Cross, the Silver Star, the Bronze Star of Valor, and the Purple Heart as he was one of the few generals who was wounded in battle. When the Korean War began, he served as the Chief of Staff in the United Nations Command, and because of his character, because of his calm, and because of his wisdom and self-control, he was ultimately named President, President, he ultimately was President Eisenhower's choice to head the long and tedious negotiations to end the Korean War. General Harrison has been referred to and commented on as a soldier's soldier. He led a busy, ultra-active life, and he was an amazing man of the Word of God. When he was 20 years old as a cadet at West Point, he made the personal commitment that he would read the Old Testament once and the New Testament four times every year. He continued that every year until the end of his life. Even in the middle of war, which he was leading, he made his commitment by catching up on his Bible reading in the two to three day respites that occurred after a battle when his unit was being replenished and refitted for the next battle that was to come. He would catch up on his Bible reading, and when the war ended, he was on schedule with his Bible reading plan. At the age of 90, when his eyesight was failing, he had read the Old Testament over 70 times and the New Testament over 280 times. It's no wonder that his godliness and his wisdom were proverbial. It's no surprise that he also, for 18 years, was very fruitful in leading Officers Christian Fellowship. General Harrison serves as an example for every one of us that even for the busiest of us, it is possible to systematically train ourselves in godliness and to systematically train ourselves in God's Word and to train ourselves in prayer. And the reason why we do so is for it is to this end that we toil and strive. Because we have our hope set on the living God, not of the things of this world. We have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. We train ourselves in godliness because our hope is not in our health, it is not in our physique, it is not in the things of this world. Our hope is in the living God. Our hope is in him because he sent Jesus Christ to be our substitute, to be the one who took our punishment, 
to be the one who came as our Savior to save us from our sins, to redeem us from sin, death, and the devil, and to give us life, life abundant here to be enjoyed right now, and life to be enjoyed eternally. And so he commands us to train, to earnestly train in godliness, not to gain God's grace, but that you would enjoy the abundant grace of God that he bestows so lavishly in this material world. And that those, as we engage in this training, that we would engage in godly training, that we would train deliberately and earnestly, day by day, week by week, and we would do so because we say, I do this because I love God. I love his word. I want to honor him. I want to know him. I want to enjoy him. Because God made us that our greatest and deepest and most exuberant satisfaction that is possible to receive in this life and be found in this life is found in God himself. So may we train. May we deliberately, intentionally exercise and train. May we train ourselves in truth. May we train ourselves to enjoy God. May we train ourselves for eternity so that we would train ourselves in godliness and enjoy God as our highest end. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you that you're not a Scrooge and you're not a curmudgeon and you don't give your gifts resentfully or limitedly. You don't give things to us being like, well, I guess if I have to, if they need that. But you are lavish. You are extravagant. And that is just a sign of your goodness and your love. And Father, we confess to you that we look at the the things of this creation that for self-indulgence, we try to make ourselves godly through through self-denial, but really we need to pursue godliness not by seeking the things of this world or abstaining from the things of this world. We need to seek godliness by seeking you and enjoying you and enjoying what it means to be a worshiper of you, created by you to be stewards over the good creation that you gave, that we might have life and have it abundantly. Thank you for the immense blessings and enjoyment that you give to us. And Lord, may we enjoy your creation with thanksgiving, through the word of God, through prayer, and that by enjoying the things of this world, we would enjoy you and know how good and awesome and amazing you are as our Heavenly Father. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.